0: This is Scott Poynton, and we're here for another TFT Earthworm QE podcast, and I'm talking to my mate, Toby Webb. Haven't spoken to Toby for a little while. How are you going, Toby?
1: Not bad, thanks, Scott. I'd say fair to middling on average.
0: Fair to middling on average. Well, what have you been up to, mate?
1: Well, we've been uh, at Innovation Forum. We've been working on our usual plethora of supply chain sustainability conferences and publishing, anything from sustainable fish to smallholders to business and human rights, sugar cane, uh, palm oil and deforestation. And the next thing we're gearing up for is our big meeting in Singapore at the end of September and I hope you'll be able to come along and ask your usual set of difficult questions.
0: Well, I might do. Let's see. But uh, what have you been up to yourself? What's Toby Webb been doing?
1: Um I've become a prisoner of technology, Scott, I'm afraid. I'm turning 40 in a couple of weeks, uh, so I decided to get fit and become a slave to technology. So I bought a Fitbit and um that's the thing that goes on your wrist. Other Brands of device are available, I should say. Um, <laughs> don't, we don't and, want to be you know,
0: endorsing just one technology here on on, no, our, on uh, our podcast. No, that's true, totally
1: Plenty of others are available, and um, it's been making me run around doing 10,000 steps a day. I hate to say it because my anti-authoritarian nature doesn't like being controlled by a machine, but I am feeling an awful lot better for it.
0: Well, good for you. But I think something deeper and larger has happened in your life since we last spoke. Do you want to
1: share that? Oh, yes, that's true. The, the arrival of my son, Daniel.
0: Congratulations, it, mate.
1: Thank you. Turned up uh, just just after our last podcast. Little fellow's doing very well, although down here in Nice, where, where I live, um, he's struggling slightly with the heat, A bit but hot. otherwise all good. And and how about you, Scott? You recently had your TFT uh, gathering. Interested to find out how that went. Yeah,
0: we did. We had our earthworm gathering up in the the Grand Paradiso National Park in uh, in Italy. Fantastic. Just over the border with France through the Mont Blanc Tunnel. Beautiful place. And uh, we had 10 people turn up and uh, a great variety of people, different. I think we had, I don't know, amongst the 10 people, eight nationalities or something like that. Spent three and a half days sort of in session, uh, Sunday night before, and then we got into it on Monday and uh, finished up on Thursday afternoon. Terrific session, great feedback. What we were looking to do was really look at our values, transparency, transformation and verification process. Could in a way, be, be worked through with, with people and with individuals. We do it with companies, and we got good feedback. It didn't work for everybody, fair to say, but I think we, we got some great feedback from a lot of people that they thought it was terrific, and we'll be putting more about that on our Earthworm website, which, of course, is earthworm.net, and we can encourage people to have a look at that and learn more about it. We, we're going to be doing more. We'll probably invite you along to one, Toby.
1: Yes, I, I quite like these sort of things. Um, and having come, come from a sort of sceptical journalist background, I always thought these things were a bit silly. Um, but I went to one running Crete about four years ago uh, with a similar variety of people. And it was fascinating. And I still think back to some of the conversations I had then. And there the must have been 200 or 300 or 500 business meetings since then that I can't remember. But I actually remember that, that particular retreat. So these things are very valuable if you can um, keep them slightly under control. Uh, And I'm sure uh, using your your framework, that was done well. So I'm looking forward to to seeing one of them at some point.
0: Yep. Let's talk about uh, what's topical. You know, the whole purpose of our chats, Toby and I look to do regular chats. As I say, we haven't had one for a little while, just over a month we've been busy doing other things. But the purpose of the chat really is to just look at what's topical in the sustainability space, certainly in the areas that we're working, which is really natural resources and commodities, and have a bit of a chat about those things. And since we last spoke, Toby, we've had what some people would would think is a bit of a trauma of the disbanding of the Indonesian palm oil pledge or or, or IPOP. And um, you guys at Innovation Forum put together a, a blog about that. Did the Indonesian palm oil Pledge, succeed, or fail. I posted a comment saying I thought that uh, some of the comments being bandied around, particularly by the NGOs, was utter nonsense. But uh, let's chat about that. What's your view?
1: Well, I, you know, I don't want to say the classic thing of I, I can see both sides here. When I, mean, I wasn't aware of some of the background behind its founding, mm-hmm. um, but the criticisms I'd, I'd always heard about IPop were not enough defence, not enough offence. Uh, and ended up causing offense, if you'll excuse the play on words because they they didn't really seem to know what they were doing, but I suppose added up to something greater than the the sum of their parts. Um, but I did think, Scott, it was a bit harsh of you to say, um you know it's a good thing that it's it's had its demise. you know NGOs are arguing this is a step back, uh, and I can see their point there because they will be saying this shows. The forces at at will, if you like, the the, the sort of residual forces in in national industries, that they can push back against multinational sustainability efforts. And, you know, surely that is a bit of a step back, isn't
0: it? No, look, I don't think so. I I think that it belies, those comments belies a misunderstanding of what was actually happening out there, and the role that IPOP was playing, the role that the individual member companies in IPOP were, were, were playing, and the role of the Indonesian government. And I think that IPOP was hailed when it came out was because it engaged with the Indonesian government. And back in September 2014, when it was signed into life at the UN Gala event in New York, for me, in, in some ways, it was a PR exercise to enable the UN to say something good had happened out of one of their meetings, which there's an element of that, I think. Beyond that, it did engage the Indonesian government. Uh, president um, SBY, who was the outgoing president at that time, he signed the pledge with the companies and said let's let's do something let's see if we can sort this out because the reality is the companies the the individual companies were sort of butting up running up against existing Indonesian government legislation which was making it difficult for them to implement their no deforestation no exploitation and no peatland policies and so the ipop was was dreamed into life as a way of providing a platform for the companies to go to the government, and address these things. Not a bad idea in that sense, but I think very quickly it ran into issues where they had to work out what they were going to do. They put together a great secretariat, staffed by really great people, very competent people, but still the group, the companies had to come together. And you know, when companies first come together, it's a bit difficult. They want to make sure they're avoiding things like antitrust legislation. They want to make sure that they're not discussing price and all this sort of stuff. So they had to sort of, a couple of dogs, you know, sort of circling around, smelling each other's bums. They'd probably be upset if they heard me say it like that. But, you know, they were sort of seeking, you know, feeling each other out about where this could go. And, of course, that took time. And they weren't meeting every day. These meetings were happening over time. So it had a bit of a slow start-up anyway. Then as the companies, but see, amongst all that time, and I think this is what the NGOs are not necessarily understanding, is that meanwhile, The companies were out there implementing their pledges and their policies anyway. IPOP was just a mechanism to talk to the government. It wasn't the pledge itself. It wasn't the no deforestation policy itself. So if that was the case and it was disbanded, I agree, reason for despair. But in fact, all the individual policies were in place before IPOP with the exception of of the last joining member, which was Astra Agro Lestari. They were the last, the sixth member to join. Um, They came in afterwards, but for the five initial companies, they'd already signed their no deforestation pledges. They were being implemented and IPOP was just a mechanism for them to chat to the government. So they can still chat to the government. They're still implementing their policies. What happened, I think, with IPOP was it became a distraction. Everyone got upset about it. You know, The government got a bit cranky. Some of the companies pushed back. But nonetheless, look what's happened instead. The government's now taking great steps forward, implementing really strong policies that give us great hope, in fact. And I think my biggest problem with the articles I've seen in the various papers about this is the NGOs are all negative. And I think, you know, come on, guys, there's no time for hand-wringing. Let's let's not be negative. Let's not moan about things. Let's look at what's happening. And and this is, I, I have great hope from what the Indonesian government's doing. I have great hope from what the individual companies are doing. And I'd, I'd rather than, rather than hear people talking about that in a negative way, let's pump up its ties. Let's talk in a positive way. Let's give it some
1: oxygen. So, well, I think what the critics would say, though, no, Scott, is that um, you know there are a, a, a government alternative to IPOP in Indonesia is is the Indonesian palm oil standard, and uh, in the article we wrote, the Rainforest Foundation of Norway was saying, you know, that it's that's only about compliance with Indonesian laws and regulations. So you might argue that a potentially powerful lobby, lobbying platform, which has failed, now leaves behind it rather weak, deliberately weak national institutions. And the Indonesians don't have a great track record on protecting the rainforest. Um, although lots of noises will be made when they want some money from the Norwegians or whatever, um, but as soon as anything starts to bite politically, you know, you see this kind of pushback. So I can see the point of the NGOs um, saying this. This is could be seen as a step back because I mean, do you really trust the the, the current institutions out there in Indonesia to? to do what they've said that they are going to do?
0: Well, I have to because if I don't trust them, where am I going to be? And I I think this is part of the problem. There's such a lack of trust in these discussions that we think we need these organisations like IPOP to take things forward. I think the way change happened is when people sit down around the table, look each other in the eye and work out the common ground. And I think that's that's what was happening before IPOP. The, The companies were going in and talking to the government. They were getting pushed back but nonetheless they are implementing their policies. And, you know, let's be clear that this Indonesian uh, Indonesian system that you're talking about, the NGOs are worried about, um, really only has come to part because the IPOP was there. So the Indonesian, you know, we now have the Indonesian sustainable palm oil. We had ISPO before, but it's been given oxygen and legs because of IPOP. So because IPOP was there, ISPO is now being given oxygen and legs. And if IPOP wasn't there, it might have just been bumbling along. So there's there's cause and effect relationships here. Now, I, I believe that sometimes these multilateral approaches actually can cause more problems than they solve. And I think that what we're seeing here, coming back to this question of the Indonesian government, we can see great progress. And I think perhaps the Indonesian government had a slow start. What a tragedy we saw last year with all the fires and the haze and, and the terrible destruction that they caused and the suffering that they caused. I think it's been a great wake-up call. Unfortunately, people often need these tragedies before they, they wake up and take action. But let's look at what the Indonesian government are doing. And they have taken strong action. And we're seeing that action continuing. It wasn't just a once-off. They're making strong actions to protect the Lursa ecosystem. There's court cases being won. There's new policies. There's palm oil licenses being controlled and cancelled. These are all strong steps. And uh, and I don't think that was what was planned by the industry guys who pushed against IPop. And we know that the the IPop signatories continue to talk to the government. They're, the government is seeing what's happening with the development, and they understand, actually, that this might be a good thing. So let's wait and see. We won't know in time. But again, I, I just read this. All of these articles about this is a disaster. This is terrible. I'm like, guys, God, you know, do you have to ever bring everything down? I had a colleague here from Indonesia just last week, and he said, you know. There's not large-scale deforestation happening anymore in Indonesia at this stage, not, not, not on the vast scale we've seen in the past. It's still happening uh, here and there for palm oil, but not what it was. And And I think there's credit due to the government for that and there's credit due to the, yes, the member companies of IPOP. IPOP spent most of its time trying to work out how to work together and it had a few meetings with the government, but I don't know that it was ever particularly effective. And the idea that we need such an ineffective body to save our souls, well, that worries me a little bit. And I think there are other ways.
1: No, I understand your point. Um, I admire your optimism and I hope you're right. Um, how does this feed into the CADIN pledge then, which we were talking about very excitedly back in 2014? Um, what's the relationship between IPOP and, and the CADIN pledge? And I think some people might be slightly confused about this.
0: Yeah, well, I think CADIN, which is the Indonesian Chamber of Commerce, I mean, I, I again, I I commend those guys. I think that they take, took a great stand saying, no, no, this is great for business. We need to play a role here. And and they really were a driving force behind IPOP getting signed up by the companies who are members of Cut-In and by the government. So well done to Cut-In. But again, I think that they then struggled to find a way of getting IPOP to work. And so really the Cut-In pledge is, is completely linked to IPOP. So Look, the Cardian Pledge is probably still there, but it's in the background and I don't think it's going to carry much weight and much legs. I think what's going to happen, we we can only measure the success of any initiative by what happens on the ground and getting people into meetings and sitting there having a good chat and trying to work out what they're going to do together. One meeting every few months, that's not, I, I, I honestly feel that it muddied the water and I do believe it became a distraction and it became, it gave the naysayers in the government and in the industry a stick with which to beat no-deforestation pledges with. Now, I think if the companies had just gone about their business, as they are now doing, still talking to the government, still talking to smallholders, there was a concern in one of the articles, I think it was from Greenpeace, or it might have been Rainforest Action Network, where they were saying, oh, what a shame, now the smallholders are going to suffer. I, I, that, honestly, that's just not the case. That's nonsense because the companies, individual companies, have all of these pledges to work with the smallholders. It wasn't IPOP working with the smallholders. It was the member companies. And it was happening, irrespective of whether IPop exists or not. So all of these things are going to go forward, and I think actually, without that getting beaten up by the government, who was worried about sovereignty and antitrust issues, that stick is now gone. So the companies, in a way, have have a bit more freedom now to go forward with their uh, implementing their policy. So honestly, I think it's a good thing, mate.
1: Well, let's hope let's hope you're right. The argument makes makes a lot of sense. I suppose we'll you know the age old cliche of we'll we'll see what happens. I suppose the lesson, if you are right to me then, for companies is don't rush in and be pressured to do something because the UN or somebody else wants to make an announcement. Because if this is going to work, it has to come, again, another cliche, organically, locally, and, and from the ground up. And if they were going to build this, they should have built it from Indonesia rather than announcing it and then sort of crowbarring it on top of policy. So if your assessment is correct, Uh, I suppose that might be a key lesson.
0: I think it will be. Honestly, you've heard me say this 4,000 times before. It's got to come from the values of the people that are doing these things. And the values were already in place. The member commitments were already there. I honestly feel it was a PR exercise to give the UN participants at the meeting and the organisers something to crow about to say their meeting was a success. And I, I actually advised our members not to go there. Not not, yes to go, but more, I didn't advise them not to sign the cut-in pledge because I thought that was a good thing. But, you know, the big grand pledge they came out with more broadly, for me, it was a PR exercise, you know, striving to end deforestation by 2030. Well, that's ridiculous. And uh, in fact, our members' policies are striving to end deforestation in their supply chains today. And uh, let's not wait till 2030. And so it was all a bit weak and pathetic. And it was all about PR so that people could say some nice things about the meeting. Don't get drawn into that stuff. Keep following your own values and don't get distracted by these strange multi-stakeholder things. Still be multi-stakeholder. You can still talk to people. No one's saying go into your shell and do it on your own. That's exactly not what we're saying. Talk to everyone. But the dialogue that is needed actually gets stifled when they all get together. And, for example, the Indonesian government, I'm sure, felt they were being ganged up on. And then yeah. they thought the Indonesians, sorry, the NGOs were standing behind iPop with a stick saying, yeah, go and get those buggers. And it just made a bad feeling. Now I think that it's disbanded. It it actually creates a bigger bigger, and better opportunity for more quality dialogue between all the players. And, and honestly, I feel the NGOs saying negative things all the time just pushes them out on a limb. And, and we don't need that. We need them inside working at how to make things work. So there, that's my thoughts.
1: Well, for any listeners concerned about Scott wearing out his soapbox, uh, we are going to start a fund uh, for the podcast to to buy him a new one for every other podcast, so you won't <laughs> you won't wear it out. Good man. Um, good good points. Good points. Well, you know, as I say, we'll, we'll see what happens, and I'd be interested in some some listener responses to this. I, I have a feeling there might be some. Let's move on now, Scott, and talk about IOI Loaders Quackland. If I'm pronouncing their name correctly, we talked about them in the previous podcast. We didn't quite understand what 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 their game was with regards to um, being suspended from RSPO and then launching a legal suit against the RSPO uh, in Switzerland uh, over their membership. We, we talked about it being an extremely worrying move because um, it could set a very dangerous precedent for these multi-stakeholder organizations. And I personally could have seen if one of these lawsuits succeeded, some of these institutions could end up sort of collapsing under, under legality issues. Things have changed a bit since we last did a podcast, haven't they?
0: They certainly have. And IOI I believe under great pressure from the people who are very worried in that way that we would you would just described that these uh, multi-stakeholder organisations, in this case the RSPo, would more or less collapse uh, and become completely ineffective if IOI won the lawsuit. So they withdrew the lawsuit. Uh, well, I think it's a good thing, and now discussions are unfolding, and and people are more there's still discussions with the NGOs and with others about what IOI can do to address the issues that have been raised against it. So. So that's a good thing. We always say to people, stay away from the lawyers, get around a table and have a good old chat. And it seems to be that that's what's happening.
1: Yes, I think from my understanding, um, Unilever put a lot of pressure on them. And and I think they were quite badly advised. Clearly doing what they did uh, was a a bad idea. But I'm pleased to know now that IOI are being being well advised by very experienced people who who were not talking to them before. So um, my understanding is now it's kind of back to back to remediation and uh, reform and attempt to to get re-included. I mean, the worrying um, consequence of all this for IOI, a bit like it's been for APP, is it's very, very difficult to get back into company supply chains once they've cut you. And in fact, in some ways, this sort of slightly annoys, causes frustration in supply chain managers. I mean, one very large company that I do a lot of work with you know, rang me after the announcement of IOI and said, you know, we're, we're working on it. But it's all fractions and derivatives of palm oil. It's an absolute nightmare to find IOI palm oil in our supply chain or in our tier one, tier two supply chains. But you know, we're, we're committed to doing it. And um, I then spoke to them the other day and said, Oh, it's all fine now. (laughs) And, uh, you know, in a way, they weren't terribly happy to hear that because they didn't want people asking them, Well, when are you going to start sourcing from this company again? Because they've just spent three months trying to put in place a process to to get them out. Yeah. Um, And this is the problem for APP, um, you know, much reformed company these days, Asia Pulp and Paper. But um, similar companies have said to me, Oh, God, well, you know, I've changed my supply chain too late. Why should I just go and buy a similarly priced commodity from somebody else who doesn't have this problem, and I don't have to rechange my supply chain again? So this is the the worrying thing for companies who don't understand this. Just because you get allowed back into the fold, doesn't mean it's still you know it's still going to cost you a lot of money for years to come. I think
0: that's right. You know the emotions of of what happens when an NGO attacks you, or you feel you've been mistreated. By RSBO or FSC or one of these certification bodies, is the emotion jumps in and 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 you can react to that, and particularly if you think you've actually done a good job and you've tried to address the people's concerns, and uh, and I understand that in in many ways, but again, that sort of angry approach that some people come with doesn't always work, and it does have these, it can have, as you've just noted, these long term effects on your business, and uh, and sometimes with a, with a bit of a chat and and uh, talk to a range of people, you can, your anger can can just dissipate and uh, and you can start getting some uh, some different thoughts and, and you find a way forward. And look, it looks like that's what's happening with IOI, which is good news. I haven't heard any more about the Greenpeace Resolute case. I don't know if we talked about this in our last podcast. We know that Resolute has launched a lawsuit against Greenpeace. I, I can't remember if that's happened after our last one or before, but anyway, that one doesn't seem to be going away. We'll, we'll watch that one with interest.
1: No. And and in fact, we are due to have a very special guest on the podcast to talk about that at some point. You and I have discussed the fact, and listeners to our previous podcasts may not be aware, but um, Scott and I, particularly myself, have been attacked by an anonymous troll on Twitter who calls himself at the underscore Publius underscore. um, And he won't tell us who he is, but um, he continually, or has continually, attacked me in particular, for running what he calls a sort of eco-mafia racketeering business where I get companies to be beaten up by NGOs and get paid for it. Well, oh, he's right. Um, is he right on um, me, Toby. Well, I'd look at it in a slightly more nuanced <laughs> slightly way. Slightly different way. Um, you know, we, we give we give NGOs uh, as hard a time as we can as well. Anyone who comes to one of our events, I think we'll, we'll see that. Obviously, companies are bigger actors, so, you know, they get more attention, which I think is fair enough. Anyway, I have asked the Publius um, if he'll come on the podcast and have a ding-dong argument with us about NGOs and their legitimacy. And he said he would. So if you're listening, the Publius, apologies we haven't done it so far. Uh, Scott and I have both been very busy, but we're up for it. Um, we're assuming that you're going to disguise your voice and speak to us as sort of like Darth Vader or something, which I'm going to find incredibly entertaining and slightly unnerving at the same time. So listeners, keep your ears peeled, so to speak, for that, because we may have the Publius joining us to uh, to tell uh, Scott and I just—just just how much of a of a sort of eco racket that we run, and how terrible NGOs are in in future podcasts.
0: We, we must chase that up, Ashley, because since um, we made that offer and the Publius agreed, it's all gone a bit quiet. You've reminded me of that. I think we better we better send a tweet and see if we can uh, we can rouse the Publius up to join us. I, I'm always yes. happy to talk to people, and you know, I've been uh, given grief in the past. I'm always happy to hear what people have got to say, and uh, so the Publius, as Toby said, if you're out there listening. Let's get in touch. Let's see if we can get you on and, uh, and have a good old chat.
1: be a good one, won't it? It'll be
0: great. It'll be great. Just to remind everybody, it's Toby Webb and uh, Scott Pointon here on our Earthworm Cooey podcast, our, our regular chat where we get together. You've been looking at something what I I find very interesting. You've been looking at technology and sustainable agriculture. Tell us a bit about that, mate.
1: Well, yes. I mean, as you know, my eco-mafia racket business relies shame, upon- Shameful. Shame shameful as it is relies on putting on the conferences on interesting sustainability supply chain topics. And we've done a lot of stuff on smallholders. But uh, as someone who grew up in the countryside, uh, I'm fully aware that uh, as someone who spent a lot of time talking to large companies about this stuff, you look at the numbers and a lot of uh, the impacts of agriculture are not um, are the, are the, on the doorstep of foot, smallholders. They are often about big suppliers and the kind of um, plantations, farms, for, you know, and so on that they run. Uh, And so we started looking at sustainable technology um, for for agriculture. And my lens for looking at this is what are are the technologies that are going to enable big companies to meet their sustainable agriculture targets outside of smallholder engagement, which means probably two-thirds, maybe even four-fifths in some crops, or it could mean a a very small amount in others because smallholders are very dominant in in tropical agriculture, but in many other areas, uh, they're not. Yeah, so, what but, are the tools that can help there? That's that's been a really interesting area to look at.
0: Yeah, I was just going to jump in to say, let's be clear, because I know this is the case with you, Toby. You're not saying ignore the smallholders. That's not what you're saying, because I know you no. you run conferences on that. But what you're actually saying here is, whilst you're busy working with the smallholders, what else can we do on, on these on these bigger bigger areas where the companies control the land to to bring technology and things to part to improve situations there, right?
1: Yes, exactly right. And you know, I've been been looking for a long time at the work Waitrose has done in the UK with their with their beef farmers. M and S has uh, you know a lot of long standing work with suppliers to improve sustainable agriculture. Unilever similarly, Nestle Uh, go and talk to Nestle about their dairy herds in Pakistan, and the stuff they've done there is absolutely fascinating. And it's a very old story now, but these are not necessarily smallholder businesses that they're dealing with. These are some larger suppliers. So been looking at the technology that can deliver there, and obviously um, satellite stuff is getting a lot cheaper. You know, lots and lots of satellites are going up these days, Um, and so uh, satellites are getting cheaper, but, of course, they're still very expensive. So then uh, I had a long conversation with uh, someone about drones the other day and the potential of drones for sustainable agriculture. Um, It's all very experimental, but the chap I was talking to, uh, he has a drone now that can lift – 35 kilograms uh, and stay aloft for quite some time. So the amount of technology you can put in these things is phenomenal. And if you want to track progress over land, drones are certainly one way of doing it. And probably the most interesting area that I'm trying to get my head around is gene editing. Um, And gene editing is very complicated, and I don't pretend to understand all of it. But it's not so much about taking a gene from a tomato and putting it into a potato, uh, the sort of frankenfoods, stuff that campaign has been talking about for a long time it's more about understanding the genome of a particular plant or species and then editing that uh, for more sustainable outcomes and there's an awful lot of research been going on here Um, and obviously it takes a bit of a technician a bit of a, a scientist to understand all the details but it looks like there's an enormous amount of potential in gene editing to create sustainable more sustainable crops uh, and, and these are being tested all over the world in various areas: um, you know, oranges, wheat, rice, soybeans, potatoes, uh, sorghum. And the idea is that you don't necessarily have to to do what people regard in some places of the world as being socially unacceptable, but you can just tweak what's already there. So um, I, I, I urge you to have a look at this technology. It's called CRISPR. C R I S P R. You can Google that, um, and it's it's got some really interesting. Uh, potential there in terms of you know, strains of wheat that are resistant to powdery mildew, uh, corn that are edited for drought resistance, but of course, all of these crops also come these innovations come with a bit of a downside, because um, you know oil oilseed rape, um, in one case, has been altered for herbicide resistance, but of course, that just means you can spray more weed killer on your crops. Right. Um, so, as with all of these things. Uh, the thing in itself is not necessarily universally good. It depends on how you choose to use it.
0: Yeah, like I was talking to some kids yesterday, uh, actually it was on Monday, uh, with Julian, one of my colleagues, and uh, we were just talking about the work TFT does. These are 16 to year, 18 year olds, and they asked me this question about GMOs, and what did I think? And I said, well, you know, my, my view of it is I'm not really up to speed with all of the gene technology. It does worry me. I don't understand it enough, well enough to say, but the real concern I have with the GMO stuff is that it's it's being pushed by companies who uh, then encourage you to spray all of their pesticides and herbicides all over the place because their their seeds and their, their GMO seeds are, are resistant to it. And, and, of course, we're seeing those pesticides causing all sorts of cancers. You know, in India where they've had the green revolution for so many years, they have cancer trains where where the, the people are, uh, you know, coming down into Delhi and, and Mumbai and places like this uh, whole families suffering from cancer, filling up waterways with pesticides. This is this is for me an environmental and social disaster. In India, you've got so many farmers committing suicide and terrible things. There's a new movement, in fact, of well, you know, it's not new that it's organic, but there's a there's a deeper movement that comprises organic farming in India, which is really about giving strength and 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 control back to the farmers, and and it's really taking off because of the, such the low point that these green technologies and herbicides and pesticides took the farmer families too so i think these are interesting developments but we've really got to try and divorce ourselves from this heavy use of herbicides and pesticides
1: yeah so companies have made great efforts in places like india to try and empower some of these farmers i recall pepsico many years ago talking about relatively simple innovations around direct rice seeding and drip irrigation which had an incredible result on farmers and improve their lives. So, um, you know, let's not tire all, all of these companies with the, the same brush. Um, I remember doing a radio interview with um, Vandana Shiva on the World Service about 12 years ago, where she claimed she, she kept saying repeatedly, um, and I'm not going to say the name of the company, XX is murdering farmers. And I recall this absolutely terrified producer sitting there watching this go out <laughs> on the World Service. Right. Luckily, with a 15-minute delay, so they could edit out everything she said that would get the BBC sued. So, um, yes. so, so these issues are, are not new um, in terms of you know, control of, of, of agriculture, but it's the enabling technologies that can make subtle differences in line with culture, in line with how people work. They're the really interesting ones. And to, for for too long, big company engagement in this sort of thing has ended up being associated with, with two or three negative uh, names or examples. I mean, just an example of um, of one of these firms, is one called Recombinetics, which is um, carrying a smidgen of genes from naturally smooth-headed beef cows into hornless dairy cattle. This has resulted in a project where Brazilian beef cattle may have larger muscles for more tender meat, uh, and other firms are developing chickens that only pr- produce female offspring, and beef cattle that only produces Males. Now, I think this is where it starts to get a bit edgy again. Isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, I don't like that. You
0: know, don't like you, the out of that, mate. If,
1: if you're going to Sainsbury's or you're going to cuff or to Migros to buy your eggs, do you really want to know that those chickens have been engineered to only produce female offspring? I'm not sure I want to give that egg to my son. No. Um, although scientists may tell us in five years' time it's perfectly healthy. Um, th- this just—I think this example just shows us how you have to be very, very careful when you look at technology and agriculture. That you know you have to look at it case by case. You have to look at it where it's being used, how it's being used um, and whether it meets your criteria for being sustainable or not. So it's a really interesting area and I think there'll be a lot more to come in this space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look, you mentioned this idea of, you know, companies being evil and there are cases, I think, where where people can point to and say, look what the company's done here. But more and more now and certainly this is what we're seeing in our work with TFT and our members is that they're doing a lot of companies are doing extraordinary things but where they get great benefit and achieve great results is when they sit down with the people that are going to be affected by what they're doing. Go and talk to the farmers don't and talk to them like they're bright people. Don't talk to them as if you've got to teach them something. No, don't go out there and say, you're a bit thick, therefore I'm going to have to do this and spray all this stuff. We've seen this. We've seen this in in our work in Cocoa, for example, where farmers are just told, you want to increase your productivity? Here, spray this. And And millions of dollars of aid money is going into the pockets of fertilizer and pesticide companies, herbicide companies, uh, so that the farmers can spray vast amounts of that stuff all over the place and it's not helping so what we see is when the companies actually sit down with the farmers they try and work out and, and I think you mentioned it you know culturally sensitive stuff um, you know really work with them and yeah there can be some training it's not that the farmers know everything but there's a lot of traditional knowledge there too and when we see those things working in partnership as we know that Nestle are doing for example with their cocoa work and and uh, and some of the stuff they're doing their dairy farm you mentioned the the stuff in Pakistan, the dairy farming in China. You know, there's a lot of collaborative work done. And when it's truly collaborative, amazing things can happen. And that's when I think in that context, you have a better chance of introducing technology that can be tried, can be tested in collaboration with the people that are doing the growing and the farming and and you can get better results.
1: Uh, That's absolutely right. I think, you know, as usual, we're calling for more and better and more strategic understanding of stakeholder engagement and its value because if you don't do it, and, and we particularly know this about, about GM, right, particularly. You know, they didn't understand the concept of stakeholder engagement. They thought, we're scientists, everyone, everybody will accept what we're doing is brilliant, and it became one of the biggest backfiring episodes in, in modern corporate history entirely because of that. So, yes, I uh, have to wholeheartedly agree with you on that one.
0: Got to chat with people. I think that's the key thing. Indeed. Toby, we're at the end, I think. So thanks again, mate. And uh, I hope you're starting to get a few sleep-filled nights with your little fella.
1: Bit by bit, yes. Bit by bit, bit he's by not bit. too bad.
0: Good on you, and um, and we look forward to chatting again and uh, hearing more about uh, what you're doing. And uh, and off we go.
1: Great, yeah. Look forward to the next one, Scott. Well, hopefully our um, our anonymous Darth Vader voiced Publius friend will uh, will join us to tell us what we do is fundamentally worthless. I, I look forward to that. I,
0: I do too. Let's let's see if we can get Publius on. I, I, I shall certainly let's go and write to him right now.
1: Yeah, let's do that. All right. Thanks, everybody, and
0: uh, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <music> bye.